I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Professor and Chair of French and Francophone Studies, Kirk Reed. Professor Reed sat down via Zoom with multi-faith fellows Joan Buse and Yua Chi Chua to discuss silence as a means of connection, discovering his vocation, and baking pies as a spiritual practice. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, even in these strange conditions. So to start off, can you tell us about where you were born and about your earliest memories of childhood? So I was born officially in Wilmington, Delaware, and spent, I guess, uh, three or four years there, moved to western Pennsylvania for a couple of years. But I would say when people ask me where I'm from, uh, it's where I mainly grew up, and most of my childhood memories are from upstate New York. So outside of uh, Ithaca, New York, in a small village uh, in upstate New York, sort of farming country, large regional high school, but... um, Uh, People see New York license plates and they think the city, and that is not where I'm from. (laughs) To borrow a question from the podcast On Being, did you have a particular religious or spiritual background in your childhood? So this is um, pretty easy to answer. So born into a family uh, with a father who is a Protestant minister, a Presbyterian minister, and my uh, mother was also... um, I think she always said she wanted to be a minister, but for women in the 1940s, this was just not as obvious uh, a career path. But she was uh, a beautiful singer and sang professionally in the New York area um, and New Jersey area when she was growing up and always called herself sort of a minister of music. She, most of the music that she sang was sacred, as many, much of it is when you learn classical music. And so she and my dad were quite a pair. And uh, strangely, my dad was very shy, hated to preach, you know, was a, a believer and, and it was not a, a sham, but he hated standing up in front of people and saying anything. And my mom could not get enough of it. So uh, she was the gangbuster out there, a forward facing uh, cheerleader and typed up my dad's sermons and coached him through every week. But they were, they were, I would say they were quite a pair in terms of their, uh, their faith and their, uh, their ministry. Was there one person or a particular event in your childhood or youth that set you on your current path? I would say I I came from a very loving family. So it would be dishonest and ungenerous not to say that my parents were huge influences in my life, uh, giving me lots of encouragement, love, strength, guidance, and an expectation that I was always going to finish uh, high school, which was not obvious for a lot of the kids that I grew up with, Uh, go on to college, which was even rarer for people where I grew up from, and graduate school, unheard of for for many, many, many of the people in my cohort. So I would have to say my parents, uh, you know, loving parents, and some mentors around the edges through school and through my dad's church uh, that also guided me a bit. But but I, I would have to put them at the center of what the sort of wind beneath my wings as I was growing up. 
do you find in today when you were talking about your father is a minister and your mother is participating in singing, do you find spiritual practices today in your adult life that you find a lot of joy from or that you get a sense of community? Yes. So I uh, so grew up in my dad's church and then uh, for reasons which seem like a really transparent family psychodrama, when I went to college, I sought out a spiritual practice which did not have a minister, which had no intercessor between myself and God. But I still had a belief, I had a sense of a Christian sense of myself, uh, which was challenged a little bit during college years. But uh, I knew I wanted to be somewhere on Sunday mornings, but I, I wasn't quite sure that it was in a church in quite the way I grew up. So I started going to Quaker meeting. And so that spiritual practice of sitting in silence with other like-minded seeking um, humans became a practice for me and uh, a shared sense of seeking, of answering that of God in everyone, as the Quakers would say, and it was a transformative experience for me. I, it was as close to one of those lightning bolt moments in people's lives where they, you know, they fall to the ground, I believe, you know, and they don't turn back. Uh, I have to say the first hour I spent in Quaker meeting was just like, I just sighed and I said, I'm home. And I have, I have felt that way every minute since then. So, so that practice began in college. It was a wonderful escape and respite from the chaos of, uh, of all that was going on in college. Uh, and I stick to that. I mean, if I had not found Quakerism, I'd still be a, a good person. But, but for me, I needed that. So I found somewhere else to be on Sunday that responded to, uh, to my, uh, my, my quest for the divine uh, in my life that I'm forever grateful for. But I'm also a musician. And so uh, I sang in choirs uh, in church growing up. I sang in choirs at, in, in high school. And with my mom, you know, I would play piano while she would rehearse for certain things. I wasn't super great, uh, but, but I did uh, accompany her. I played tuba and almost did that professionally. I almost just, I auditioned to a music school, got in and had to make a decision about whether I wanted to be a, a brass player for the rest of my life or a teacher, which is all to say, getting to the spiritual aspect of this, I mean, it was a it was a practice that I learned in churches. Uh, all of the text of much of what I was playing was uh, biblical. And so I, I had to give that up, or I necessarily in a Quaker meeting, there is no music during the service. And so I, I miss that keenly. So you will find me every Christmas Eve in one of any number of congregational churches I have searched out in Maine, and I drag my family there, and they're like, we're Quakers, what are we? I say, no, this is for me and your mom. Uh, we're going to do this. And so I just have to go and sing. So singing is a huge part of my spiritual practice. And I also belong to um, an early music group in Portland, Maine called Renaissance Voices, which is a group of people that sings two concerts a year. And uh, again, it's classical music from the 17th century. It's, you know, Christian based. It's, it's faith based music. Many of the people in that group do not. That is not, the message of this music is not uh, as important to them. But I, I have let them know, and 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 the conductor. I think it is also part of his um, uh, his sense is that this is ministry to me. This is the liturgy to me. Singing singing these songs, I I think I respond and well up in ways or or perform them in ways that that allow me to embrace them as something I actually believe, and it's comforting to me to hear these same stories over and over and over that I've heard since I was in the womb. So, so I continue that practice, think of it as a faith-based spiritual practice, and I miss it dearly uh, with COVID. 
we have not been able to meet, uh, and it is a huge loss in my life. If you look to the trees, you will find what you seek. You will find what you seek without searching. For we break and we mend and we break, then we end. When we break, is it for no reason? Circling back to what you said about your college life, I'm curious, where did you go to college? What was that campus climate like? And in particular, did you have any professors who had a particular impact on you? So I, uh, I went to Dartmouth College uh, in 1977. Um, it was not the perfect fit for me. Uh, and I, uh, for many years, couldn't stop telling people what a non-perfect fit it was, how horrible it was. And it is not easy. Uh, Dartmouth has a reputation, did for a long time of fraternities, out in the woods, uh, all-male institution. It has obviously gone co-ed, but I was there when the first class of women graduated. Uh, and so it was, the social life was entirely around fraternities. And I didn't know from either of those. Uh, when I was in high school, all of my friends, my closest friends were, were girls or women. I was not a huge, I was a good little minister's boy. I was not a big party or drinker, uh, had no clue or interest in fraternities. So it was kind of like this strange universe. But I had, I was taken there by a dear mentor and friend who was the Dartmouth quarterback for some reason. And he took me up for a visit on a, on a, a weekend. Bonfires were burning. People were singing these songs they all seemed to know and, uh, and getting along. And it looked like they were going to classes too and that that was part of the deal. And so I was seduced by that. But it was a difficult fit. I found my way uh, really uh, with some difficulty through those years. It was amazing academically. I had some wonderful mentors. Uh, Specifically, and you may ask yourself why a kid with, you know, my mom's side is all German immigrants, my dad's side, Scottish people who came, you know, know, pre-Mayflower or whatever. How did I get involved in French? I just met really wonderful, uh, intellectually engaging mentors who who just happened to be French professors. If I had found that in anthropology or Chinese or biology, I think I would have just, it would have, it would have made a big difference. I would be teaching something else today. But these were wonderful, wonderful mentors to me in that climate and gave me a sense of, uh, okay, so socially, this is not where you, uh, where you might have wanted to land, but you could engage academically with these people and through them found cohorts of students who were like, like-minded. So I relied heavily on really wonderful mentors uh, from the faculty to sort of get me into a niche making me feel like I, I actually did belong here because a lot of the time I just didn't. And your post-graduation plans, in reality, what did you do the year after you graduated college? <laughs> so this is where I want to say, I often tell students like, oh, I have a trajectory which is enviable. I think it looks to a lot of people like, oh gosh, that is, oh, that's what you do. That's what I'll do. You know, I started tutoring kids uh, in second grade when I was in fifth grade because I knew I liked to teach. I got good at French in high school, uh, went to college. I majored in French and education, and I became a Quaker. And so I just, this is pre-internet days, I just like mailed letters just anonymously to friends' schools in the Philadelphia area because they had a friend who was going to move there and I was going to move there. And I just said, I'm available. 
uh, you know, I teach French, I've had education, this is, the, this is what I would like to do. <laughs> they wrote back and said, like, Wilmington Friends, oh, we have a job. Please, let, let's talk on the phone. We had a phone, I, and I went, and I interviewed, and I got the job. So it, that just doesn't happen. And I am not a phenom, I am not this phenom that just deserves all. I just, it, it just happened. Uh, so I, I ended up at Friends School, which is a wonderful, wonderful place to learn how to teach a little bit. I'd done a lot of TAing at Dartmouth. That's a really wonderful foreign language program with drill sessions. And I'd, I'd had a lot of experience in the classroom with students, but it was a wonderful, warm, nourishing place in which I could also, you know, be with my faith, be with my vocation uh, and, and meet wonderful people. Um, so I stayed there for four years before going back to grad school. Yeah, it seems like you have a path since like a very young age. Like, do you feel that you have a calling or a particular passion in life? And how did you find it? That's a really good question, because I never thought of it. After the fact, I've said, yeah, a vocation, you're called to something. That, 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 I guess that's the meaning of that. And I just sort of always felt at home in that. So I don't know if that's a calling, but I always felt like, the things that, that were me about me, that were good about me, or that felt right about me sort of matched up continuously with these opportunities that I kept taking, uh, that kept presenting themselves. So you make your own luck. I mean, I think, but, you know, voc vocations, what's calling to you? What are you calling out to? And how are they responding? Um, so I would call teaching a vocation. And I would not call, I would not call French uh, or Francophone studies a vocation, but being with people, being with students now at, you know, the age of 18 to 22, uh, it's been 30 years that I've been here, feels like both uh, a professional home and also a personal home for me. I, I, um, I have boundaries, but I, uh, but I also uh, have, have so many students that I, I feel connected with uh, on a personal level as well. So personally and professionally, it feels like I'm in a place where connecting with people through... Um, through teaching, through learning, and my, my subject matter just happens to be French, but uh, it could be anything, and I would feel, I think, at home in what I'm doing now. Cycling back to, like, your post-grad plans, it sounded like many of your core interests have stayed the same and that you knew what you wanted to do from a pretty young age. In what ways do you see that you have changed? Good question. So, uh, so I think I've already hinted that mm, it wasn't always obvious that French was going to be where it was, but, but I did. I went, you know, I, I taught French and I went to grad school and got a PhD. Uh, and I, I specialized in a very, what many people would think of as narrow, narrow field, uh, uh, 16th century women poets of France, uh, kind of specialized, but you know, so, um, so that was, but the beauty of Bates for me has been that if you go, at my graduate school at Princeton, there were three medievalists. There were three people from the 16th century. There were three people covering the 19th century. There were like this fleet of people. I came to Bates and I was hired as the early literature specialist. That means the Lascaux cave paintings from 10,000 whatever BC to the French Revolution. That I, I, that I would cover that. <laughs> like, okay. You can't do that. You can't cover all of those things. So, and we had to be generalists. So that was great to me. I, I felt like teaching was more what it was about. I do teach courses on women writers of the 17th century, 16th century, uh, but we had to teach more. And my students became more interested as they were studying abroad, as they were in my classes on, on French and Francophone culture, like, well, what is the history of 
of, of Muslims in France. And so I started uh, investigating and became super interested in the history of colonization of Northern Africa. And then I began traveling there and I began presenting papers there and I made friends in the Arab world. And to this day, to this last week, you know, friends presenting in my classes from a part of the world which I had absolutely no, no knowledge of when I arrived at Bates, let alone when I was younger. So my interests have uh, remained in French and Franco-Roman studies. A lot of people think, oh, you teach French, and they, they give me something about how they took French in high school, and they can't, they'd be too embarrassed to talk to me. The language is part of that. I wish you could talk to me. That's fine. But the subject matter has been what has changed me enormously. I'm now really, really concerned and interested in the Hirak, which is the, the movement for social justice and for political change in Algeria. I, I, would not, I had no clue about that when I arrived at Bates. So Bates has opened up worlds for me that I am deeply, deeply appreciative of, and that I've also got to have students come along that journey with me. I was not an expert when I came, and they helped through their questions, through their work, through studying abroad with them. Uh, you know, they've led me through this journey beautifully. Nothing tells like wasting my time again. And nothing tells like wanting to cry again. And nothing tells like when I think of you, what a lonely thing to do. Outside of the classroom or even your working life, what do you find to be most life-giving? I know you're quite well known for your baking abilities here around campus. <laughs> Uh, yes, I do. I love to cook and bake. That's, that's the way I love uh, is, you know, I make a pie. Pie is the answer. That's my t-shirt. So uh, I make pies, I make cakes, and it's almost like a, I don't know if you would call it a spiritual practice. I mean, I love aligning ingredients, uh, the chemistry, the alchemy of turning a bunch of different things into something that looks and tastes beautiful and says, you know, I care, I love you. Uh, so I've raised my family that way. I was raised that way and find that a really deeply satisfying activity to do. Um, I've done a bit of acting uh, in the last couple of years. I did that a lot in high school and some in college and have found that incredibly life-giving to sort of perform, to be, be someone else, to try and move people. The two <laughs> characters that I've gotten to perform were not especially savory characters, but at least the drama of actually in, in inhabiting another person and, and moving people's hearts and minds in a, in a dark room uh, night after night has been, has been wonderful. So acting has, and singing have been really, uh, really wonderful practices for me. I'm also an artist and a crafter a little bit. So I, I love to be uh, controlling my life during COVID has been helpful or finding ways in which I can control my life. Uh, for some people, I know this goes overboard and therapists are involved. But for me, okay, what can I, what can I control and make something beautiful with your hands? Repaint a room. I sew a bit, I, uh, I paint and watercolor and sketch a bit, just sit, look at something, try and reproduce it. And my mother was very much like this. She was a, a, an incredible uh, seamstress and knitter. So I borrowed that from her and, uh, and tried to sort of put beauty back into the world, concentrate my hands, my heart, my mind into something that, that might matter. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this in October 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. 
And um, from what you mentioned before, and as your student last semester, I know you kind of value the importance of connecting with others, especially like when you sent everyone a letter and a certificate of appreciation <laughs> um, when we were sent home. So given our current environment, could you tell us about how are you maintaining connections and relationships with friends and loved ones, um, your communities, uh, etc.? Um, I'm, I'm, you know, crying, tearing up here because um, it is hard. It's devastating. So out of that sort of tortured <laughs> silence, I would say connection is what is so important to me. If you, uh, is, uh, what part of the vocation is that? I don't know. Is it, you wait and you ask that question. It's like, what is what is important it is it is the it's the teaching but it's the connection it is being a human with another human uh loving learning um uh, being whole together and figuring that out and i i i do that and so i write to my daughters all the time with a pen and a paper and a stamp and i put you know stupid little i put a dollar bill in there whatever some fun i like to be in touch so with my student i sent journals to all of the students in my class you know uh, wherever they were and i said here's something two-dimensional uh and i said write in this you know be in touch and, and somehow the tactileness of that made me feel like there was something beyond the zoom world that um that that we could be uh involved in so so that kind of connecting uh, is super important. Zoom is, is not as bad as I thought. I mean, actually sitting here with you now, you know, I'm, maybe because we're used to it, but I get a sense of who you are. I know I worship on Sundays with Quaker worship. I, I, I did it. A lot of people just said, I can't, I cannot, I cannot worship over Zoom. And actually, it's not that bad. Uh, and so uh, Zoom has not uh, the end of, of, of all intimacy. But yes, corresponding through the mail, corresponding on the phone. Sometimes I said, let's just phone, you know, FaceTime or, or just talk is different. Uh, and, and connecting in that way has been good. I have had people in my backyard. We have a fire pit now. We mask up. And then when we, you know, when we're far enough away, we're 10 feet apart. We take our masks off. We have a glass of wine around a fire pit in the backyard or on the deck. I've been super careful. I have not had anyone in the house and don't know whether I will for the foreseeable future. We have a pod with my, my daughters and my, and my wife and there are other places. So they're coming. One is coming this weekend. She's testing up and, and I'm testing up and I think we can feel safe about them being in the house and whatnot. So arranging sort of what's feasible to be in touch and to stay in touch has been, uh, has been good. And also it's brought me out into nature a bit more. I'm not, you know, normally a big biker, runner, whatever. I bike, I run, I walk, uh, being outside also with alone, you know, with myself, but also with other people has been super, super necessary and helpful for me. As a senior myself, this next question I'm, I'm really curious about, especially given as you talked about your uniquely linear path that still mm -hmm. led to a lot of meaning and connection. Um, research shows that young people are increasingly looking to work as a source of meaning in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I know at Bates, doing work, getting that grade can be that meaning. How do you think we should be preparing students to find meaning, especially in today's world? A good question. I mean, I've mentored a lot of new faculty coming into Bates, and this maybe reflect on my own trajectory uh, and going off into the world. So I was linear, but I, I've watched a lot of nonlinear paths once you leave. And some of my advice is for you, for, for seniors now, you're going to have many more jobs. You're going to have 
seven, eight jobs before you land in a job maybe that, you know, you, you settle into and that. But I always say make wherever you are work for you. And I don't mean that in a sort of selfish way. I just mean settle in and see what's available. Uh, and for me, it's always human connections. Who are the people that you surround yourself with uh, who will feed you? With new faculty, we talk about mentoring maps. It's like, you don't look for a guru. Don't look for the perfect boss in your next job who's going to set you on the path of the gold watch, you know, in 50 years. But, you know, if this is only two or three years, it's only two or three months, uh, who can I connect with? Uh, and that feeds you professionally, but also personally. I've always sought, sought out uh, like-minded souls just for personal um, uh, relationships uh, and intimacy so that I can, I can feel at home and sane and, and, and happy as I go about my professional life as well. So pay attention to people, um, people in your path. Um, you know, there are multiple Broadway musical songs, uh, some of which you may come to mind about people who, you, who come into your path at various moments in your life and you're changed forever. This is wicked. So, so you're changed forever by, by someone who comes into your life and, and sparks something in you, shows you something about yourself, uh, and may actually turn you away from something that you thought was important that is no longer important. So those relationships, I think I would, uh, I would prize. Look back, look back to the professors at Bates, the friends at Bates, the alumni from Bates, and look forward to people that, you know, hmm, maybe that's a path, maybe that's a person, a situation that would sustain me, that, that would nourish me uh, for the next phase of my life. So, As you talk about um, meaning, um, can you tell us when do you feel most connected to something larger than yourself? Well, here we are in the chaplaincy office where we ask questions about religion and spiritual practice. And so I will come out as someone who says, I actually think of myself as a Christian. Um, I think of myself as religious. I, I, I ascribe to the practices of Quakerism uh, and find great comfort and connection in that way. Uh, and I find uh, some of the most meaning when things are just quieted down and you are in community, you're in a room, often it's a room, sometimes it's in a Zoom, <laughs> not in a room, uh, with people who are likewise concentrated on something larger than themselves, meaning in Quakerism, we experience God as that of God. We, we talk about that of God in each person, that the divine exists within us. We're not looking for this white bearded uh, man uh, in the clouds with lightning bolts and whatever hearts to just sort of shower uh, wrath or love down upon us, but it's within the hearts of the human beings on earth. Uh, and that, I guess, would be in the Christian sort of world and, and zeitgeist that Jesus was, you know, put on earth as sort of a representative of, uh, of God and that through the human experience, we find the divine. Um, and I have had a cranky path, you know, during my college years uh, as someone who did not call himself Christian. I, would, I fled from that. I did not want to be tagged as that. And part of it was the minister's son thing I just wanted to leave behind me. And part of it was there had been so much damage done in the name of Christ and Christianity uh, and, you know, it's not just the Catholic Church. It was everything. It was like, you know, wars and, 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 and sort of sanctimoniousness. There was, a, you know, the, the, the campus God squads, these very um, fundamentalist, conservative bands of people roving the campus. And I just said, you know, to, to find, do you, do you know Jesus Christ? And if you don't, you better, uh, you know, or you're, and I just, I resisted that. So at the same time, Quakerism entered my life where, so this, sort of bombastic, judgy, conservative, 
stripe sort of I just pushed away from that but I was able to walk into something that answered some of that so I was lucky uh, and and I guess uh, slowly um, have come to think well I guess if a Christian is someone who takes the example of Jesus as a uh, as a good model to follow fine there are many people in Quaker meaning who do not uh, ascribe to that and I'm completely respectful of that uh, Quakerism and the, the Christian aspect of Quakerism has meant a lot to me. So I feel most connected with the divine when I'm sitting quietly with people. We talk about in Quakerism gathered meetings where you have a sense that you're all in, a, in, in, in communion together and breathing the same air and experiencing the same divine sense of all the people in that room. And I do that on a weekly basis if I can, if I can more often than that. But that that is when I feel most uh, sustained. And so that also practically plays out in Quaker ways. My daughters were raised in, in meeting. Um, uh, my wife began attending meeting with me as well. And so if we have a problem on our minds uh, or someone's going through a difficult patch, we'll call each other and we'll say, would you mind, would you just hold Caitlin in the light uh, a little bit? She's, you know, going through this thing or whatever. Uh, and that is sort of a Quaker way of saying, would you pray for that person? <laughs> would you hold them in your heart? Uh, and, and I experienced it growing up as you, my, my mother would actually perform these things where she would, now God, Kirk's got a test today. I don't want to ask favors, but if you had a little extra time, it's a really hard test. He's failed it twice. And if you just, if you got that, and she would do this, she would do this in front of me. So some version of that I perform, we perform in our family where we just know even just saying that, it's not like you then collapse into a chair in meditation for an hour and think about, oh, you know, you has got this test, we're going to... No, it's just that you, you connect with, with that person uh, in, their, in their time of joy or need. And, um, and that's where I feel a divine sense of connection with my family. I feel obviously a paternal connection. I, I love my daughters and wife dearly. Um, but that's a, a spiritual dimension to that that I've come to appreciate more. I'm glad that I can share that as well uh, as sort of familial love, that it's sort of also grounded spiritually for us. Um, Kirk, thank you for joining us today and taking out time to talk with us here on the Buen Camino podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for spending the time with me and for caring about it. It means a lot to me. Buen Camino Buen desvío, buen tropiezo, buena recuperación, buena herida, buen remedio, buen fracaso y buena redención. Thank you to Jamie Watkins and the Bates Digital Media Studio, the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstorff, and Kirk Reed for sharing his story with us. And a big thank you to Soli Canto and Alisa Amador for the use of their beautiful music. Alisa was a beloved student of Kirk Reed and a dear friend of the Multifaith Chaplaincy during her time at Bates. Soli Canto is an award-winning musical ensemble consisting of Alisa and both of her parents. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. Angustia, buen alivio, buen conflicto, 
buena reconciliación. Buen descanso, buen trabajo, buena lucha y buena aceptación. Buen camino, el camino es tu destino, 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 el camino Buen fracaso y buena 